brought your Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 11. You have the Pew Bible in front of you if you forgot or don't have one. Romans chapter 11. The Apostle Peter writes of this in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Last Monday, there was another tragedy that makes us ask a lot of questions. The shooting at Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee. One of those questions might have been, or maybe ought to be, how long, O Lord? How much longer will evil prevail and evil people do things like murder little children? How much longer will you let the authorities you gave to protect us from such evil be allowed to encourage it, to endorse it and excuse it and cover for it? We talked on Wednesday night about this tragedy at length. I I won't stay on it this morning, but... We try to talk about the why, which is usually going to be beyond us, right? God does not usually give us the specific reasons why such things happen. We know uh, the root cause is that we live in a sinful and fallen world subjected to futility, and the people that live in it are capable of horrible evil. But beyond that, we usually aren't going to know all of the details. And so we wonder, how long is God going to wait to send Jesus back and wrap this thing up for us? How long until the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells come down and none of these things ever happen again? What would be the reason for waiting and letting such evil continue? Our text this morning in Romans, believe it or not, about the hardening of many Israelites and the remnant chosen according to grace in Israel points us to an answer to the question, How long? Why does God continue to wait to bring this world and the suffering in it to an end? Because God is breathtakingly merciful. God is relentlessly merciful to hard-hearted sinners, the worst of us, patiently giving us time to repent. Let me pray. Father, thank You for the grace given to us in Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we be faced this morning with the reality of our own sin and our own wickedness, our ongoing disobedience, even as those who have faith in You, many of us. God, let us see our need for Christ in these words and let us see the provision of grace and mercy that remains for us in this moment and for all, God, for all. Help us believe this text and understand it. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help me preach. Please help everyone here. Amen. Verse 1 of Romans 11. Paul writes, I ask then, has God rejected His people? So, 
Paul continues to anticipate and answer the questions people may have of what he's been teaching about Israel. The word then in verse 1 tells us to look just above verse 1 to understand the source of this question. He's quoting, if you remember at the end of chapter 10, Isaiah 65, 1 and 2 about Israel's disobedience and rebellion. In Isaiah 64 and 65, which is the section of Scripture Paul was drawing from in chapter 10, we find that the chosen people of Israel had become rebellious, that God had stretched out His hands to them in vain, he says. So he's let his gospel go out to the Gentiles in order to make Israel jealous by this. The effect of that strategy is seen when Israelites repent in faith. The question then is that if Israel as a whole, or all or even most Jewish persons, does not repent, believe the gospel, confess and be saved, does that mean that these originally selected people have been rejected by God? We know God keeps His Word, so how we answer that question depends on whether we take Paul seriously in this section about whether God's promise refers to the recipients of His grace only in Israel or if it is a promise to every member of one ethnic people. Paul's argument has been and continues to be that God never breaks the promise of grace to whom He makes it. Has God rejected His people? In the middle of verse 1 we read, By no means. For, Paul says, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul is once again going to use himself as the example. Since Paul was an Israelite by birth and a believer in Jesus for salvation, he is exhibit A. That no, God has not rejected His people. The issue is this, when the Scripture says the Lord will not reject His people, does it mean that all or most Jews will be saved? because of God's promise to them? Or is this verse true, that God won't reject His people, even if only some from among the people chosen to carry the promise in history also become believers in Christ and are revealed to be a part of the elect who are foreknown in Him? Clearly, Paul's answer is the latter. That's his position. Since apparently, apparently, if you'll notice, the evidence of just one believing ethnic Israelite is enough to support the statement that God has not rejected His people. That's the reason, the proof, that Paul gives immediately. But there are so many more than that, we know. And the Scripture also reveals, verse 2, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. That's going to be the thought now, or the, the, the main opposition to what Paul is saying. If you're saying God has completely rejected Israel, Paul's saying, no, I'm not saying that. Paul wrote this six, section to clarify who God's Israel actually was, so that no one would think that, so that no one would doubt His promise. As you can see here, there's a difference between the nation that was selected to be the vessel of God's promise to bring the Savior into the world and the people among them whom He foreknew. That's who He has not rejected and will never reject. And foreknow, we know from back in chapter 8, verse 29, that means salvation. The word God has not rejected His people refers to all historical Israel only to the degree that they're preserved in history in spite of their rebellion for the sake of the fulfillment of the promise at the birth of Jesus. But as Israel pertains to eternal salvation, it refers only to believing Israelites who are in Jesus by grace through faith. They inherit the promise made to Abraham and no other. In no way. Has God ever rejected, forsaken, or abandoned those who are found in Christ? 
He says at the end of verse 2, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. First Kings 19.10. The Israel Elijah is appealing to God for was the historical Israel that had abandoned God to such an extent that the prophet thought he was the only faithful Israelite left. He thought he was the only one with faith. Elijah was being sought out for death by the Israelites who had not bowed the knee to Baal. That is how far they had gone from God in verse 4. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 1 Kings 19, 18, verse 5. So too, so in the same way too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So in the midst of all Israel's rebellion down through the ages, God has kept a remnant from among them for himself. God is giving assurance to Elijah in the development of biblical revelation that even though the whole of historical Israel came under judgment and has to be cut off, the promise remains. There is seed in the stump left over after God cut the tree of Israel down. That is the remnant chosen by God in Christ. Paul reveals that in his time then, just as in Elijah's time when God's prophet was being sought for execution like Paul is, that God is working in the same way in Israel, for He has always had His elect among the unbelieving Israelites. The remnant are the people from among Israel that God foreknew and chose for salvation according to His grace, not according to works, not according to ethnicity. These are the Israel to whom God made and keeps all His promises. That's Paul's whole argument. Not the whole physical nation but the remnant according to grace. They are the ones to whom God made His promises and will keep His promises. Verse 6, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So Paul is climactically settling the issue here. If we're willing to listen, if they were willing to listen, the recipients of God's promises have been, are, and will be Always chosen on the basis of God's free grace to people. Never according to what they have, their own works, their own contributions. This truism also applies, Paul is saying, to ethnic Israel. Of course it does. Or God's promises wouldn't all be by grace. If something is by grace, then by necessity it's by grace alone. Or the reason for choosing isn't grace. So, inclusion in the people of God is not a mixture of grace and works, nor is it a mixture of grace and ethnicity. Verse 7, what then? Israel, the ethnic historical nation, failed to obtain what it was seeking, which, according to chapter 10, verse 3, was their own righteousness. They sought salvation by works. They believed that God's choice of them meant that they must be better than others and therefore able to reach God through their own attempt to do so. Not that God had chosen them to be the vessel through which the Savior of the whole world would come, this tiny nation, so that the Messiah could come through them and not through the great Roman Empire or something else to prove God's mercy and God's grace and God's power. They weren't chosen because of that. They were chosen because they were better than everybody else. And so they had it in them to obtain righteousness. Righteousness. 
the nation of Israel as a whole failed to become God's covenant people because they sought righteousness by works and not by grace. They leaned on themselves. Right, The fact that they were Israelites, the fact that they had the law. And Paul says, therefore, you, you didn't obtain it. The elect obtained it, he says in the middle of verse 7. Righteousness for salvation, that is. Because they were chosen by God's grace to obtain it and became righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, in verse 5. But the rest were hardened, he says here in verse 7. The rest, all the rest, the unbelieving were hardened. Any and every Israelite who rejects Jesus Christ has not, does not, and will not obtain righteousness and therefore justification, God's salvation. They are not God's children. He owes them nothing. He said that in chapter 9, verse 8. They are hardened because of their unbelief in Jesus. Anywhere Jesus is rejected, only God's condemnation remains. Only those who receive God's gift of forgiveness and righteousness in Christ as a gift of His grace are His children. Verse 8, as it is written. So here's how the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Isaiah 29.10, Deuteronomy 29.4. All the way back in Deuteronomy... The plan was in place for the judgment of the nation of Israel, God's stubborn sons and daughters, and for the rescue of only a remnant chosen by God's grace. And verse 8 shows how God hardened those who sought their own righteousness through their works, ultimately in their rejection of the Savior God sent. He did the same kind of hardening work to them that He did to Pharaoh in chapter 9, verses 15 through 18, which is why that was used as a reference. God will do that from time to time for the sake of the greater spreading of the glory of His name. It's always temporary. God never unelects someone to eternal damnation. Christ died for all. He gave them what they showed they wanted by rejecting His mercy. That's how God hardens, we've learned in this section. And this is how God continues to act towards unbelieving Israel to this day as it was in Paul's day as it was in the days of the prophets and of Moses this is one of the reasons why Jesus preached if you remember in parables to Israel in Mark chapter 4 verse 12 so that seeing they would not see remember and hearing they would not understand and so turn and be forgiven they have rejected righteousness by faith in Christ they've rejected what they knew and was near to their in their heart and in their mouth. They've rejected it. And God is giving them what they want. He's hardening them. He hardened the hearts of Israelites who rejected Him and opened the eyes and ears of those who by grace had faith in Him for salvation. This was God's design from eternity for Israel as a nation. He wanted it to be clear that no one belongs to Him because of what they give or what they bring or what they are on earth, but are only His by His electing love and grace, so that no one can boast, right? That's 9, 6 to 11, 8 here. That's Ephesians 2, 9 and 10. There is no grounds for boasting about belonging to Christ if you belong to Christ. God created the nation of Israel to show the world how salvation works and how the gift of God to eternal life may be received in light of our inability 
to obey His law and keep it. There is one plan for one people God calls Israel and it has never changed. The remnant chosen out of the whole world by God's grace for salvation. The church, beloved. It's not a replacement. God doesn't have to fix things. It's fulfillment. It's realization theology. Paul will go on to prove this point in the rest of chapter 11. We'll only go as far as 10 today in verse 9. And David says, so the great king of Israel now, not just Moses, not just the prophets. This is the witness of the Old Testament. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Psalm 69, 22 and 23. In David's prayer as the king for salvation from his enemies, he pronounced these curses on them. We find in the psalm because a desire for God's house consumed David. He was burdened by the unbelief and pride of his enemies. His hope was in the salvation of the Lord. This was also the prayer of Jesus. It is the prayer of Paul. It is our prayer today. Historical Israel would misinterpret their privileged status so that it became a snare and a trap to them. They would twist God's blessing of them into thinking that God shows them as a nation because they must be better than everybody else. And so they could find their own righteousness before God. And for that, God blinded them for their hardness of heart and their unbelief and their rejection and the eventual murder, by the way, of their Messiah. And yet... Yet, God still longs to bring them to Himself. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 11-22 that the dividing wall between Israel, selected for the sake of its role in the working out in history of the plan of salvation, and the Gentile nations, the dividing wall between them, the rest of humanity who is the object of God's love and for whom the plan of salvation by way of Israel worked out, has been broken down with the coming of Christ. It is to strip the text of its full meaning to think of this as only a like a spiritual thing that doesn't really refer to God's real plan. No, 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 no. No. That wall has been broken down. All those who are in Christ, Israel reduced to one, if you want to get technical, the one obedient, one faithful Israelite who keeps the promises so that what God wanted to accomplish through Abraham comes to pass. From every tribe, language, people, and nation are the people of God. Even believing Jews like Paul's opponents in Rome would take a while to come to that understanding. Peter himself is still struggling with it by the time Galatians was being written, much later in the first century. So it's not an easy thing to accept. But if Paul's right, and he is, And God's salvation, the fulfillment of His promise to Abraham, comes by grace alone to everyone who believes in Christ, rather than to everyone with some connection to ethnic Israel. And if Paul's description of the state of affairs in Isaiah 65, 1 and 2 is still the case in his own day, which it is, then the natural question is, has God rejected His people? How how does God act now towards unbelieving Israel? Is God done with them? Are they all out? Is He rejecting them? Getting them out of the way? No. No. His arms are still stretched out. God's promise will not push aside His people, which we know, of course, 
in verse 2, refers to those whom He foreknew. A remnant from among even Israel. Unbelieving Israel, chosen by God's grace. While God's hands may temporarily be covering the eyes of some Jewish persons now as He had done in the past, they're also still outstretched to any and every Jewish person who repents and turns to faith in the promise. Remember chapter 10, verse 19, that God is not rejecting them to eternal damnation. He's rejecting them to make them jealous because He longs to save them. Christ died for every single one of them and the Gospel goes out, must go out, must go out to every single one of them. For the most part, Israel still resists the Gospel, refuses to believe in Jesus. That's not God's will. But since they persist, His plan is to move history in a particular direction to darken the eyes of Israel so that the Gospel will go out to the Gentiles, many of whom will receive it and become the seed of Abraham so that Israel will become jealous of missing out on the promised blessing and turn to faith in Christ. That's a very interesting evangelical strategy. But that's what it is. They're, they're, they're not jealous if we were just a parenthesis in God's plan for national Israel church. They're jealous because we are getting what they thought they were going to get. All of it. And there's no difference, apparently. That's the fulfillment of the plan. This is God's Word. The hardening is meant to result in salvation. That's what God was doing in Paul's own day. He's still doing it in ours according to the pattern he established all the way back in Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 29 that by His grace He will work to bring salvation to all Israel as He will go on to say, which we must now understand means believing Jews and Gentiles in one new man, one holy stump, Jesus Christ Himself. Why is God's strategy to make Israel jealous of the Gentiles receiving Abraham's promise of salvation in Jesus Christ? Why would He do that? It's the same reason for which God is still waiting to send Jesus back and bring this age to a close. His mercy. His mercy. After all this time, all this sin, God hasn't given up on us. He will still gather them up in His arms. Israel, if they are willing, still. God is relentlessly merciful to hard-hearted sinners, giving us time to repent. Now today is Palm Sunday, right? In honor of the moment when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey just a week prior to His crucifixion. What was Jesus doing the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of God in human flesh, eternally preexistent with the Father. All that. All the adjectives. All the honor. All the laud and praise and glory. What is He doing riding on a donkey? Do you know how funny it would look to see an adult male riding on a donkey? A donkey's colt. Why is He doing this? What was He doing? He was being merciful. He could have skipped all of that and just come on a white horse the first time like He will be on when He returns in judgment 
at the end of time. But he came first not to condemn, but to save. And he waits now, even in the midst of all this evil, not so it can continue, but so that many more may come to faith in Christ. What happens to sadistic murderers who repent of their sin? They get forgiven by Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean they don't pay their penalty here on the earth or that justice now doesn't have to be served on earth. It must still be. But what Jesus did was so great and so sufficient that even for that, and again, we aren't all as bad as we can be, right? When, when you're, I, no, I, I keep referencing this because it's, it's fresh in my mind. It's probably fresh in yours. But we aren't all, very few of us would walk into a school and shoot children in particular. I do realize that. Like, we're not all that. But we are all sinners. This is what we don't do what Israel did and live by comparisons. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not that bad. That's not Jesus' argument. That's not God's argument about your soul. That you need Jesus because you're that bad. Beloved, the holiness of God is something we cannot grasp. We don't even know how offensive and wrong the smallest sin is, let alone the biggest ones. And the point is, in the midst of all of this, God didn't end the world when that woman walked into that school and killed all those people. He didn't end the world. Tuesday came and Wednesday came and Thursday came and Friday and Saturday and Sunday and we're here. Does it mean God has taken His hands off creation? That, that He doesn't know what to do? That He's scrambling up there trying to think of a strategy? No. It means that no matter how far our sin goes, His mercy goes farther. And if you are blessed by God, which is what would be the case if you're sitting in this room this morning, still alive, still breathing free air, even when you're a rebel against God like me, it means He's more merciful than we can possibly imagine. For hundreds, thousands of years, He's put up with this and His arms are stretched out still to Israel. And we're not above Israel. We're no different than Israel. The point of Israel is to say, even if you did have all these blessings, you still wouldn't believe How long does God have to be patient with you? How long does He have to be merciful to you? For you to believe that that's what He's really like. He didn't, He's not dying for the you that everybody sees, right? We talk about this all the time, the you that you present to others. It's like the goal of our witnesses to make it look like we don't need Jesus to people. He died for the you that was sinning against Him in the dark when nobody else saw. That's the stuff He died for, including all the other stuff that we do. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Stop rejecting Him. You don't have to get all cleaned up to come to Him. You don't have to get all cleaned up to stay with Him. Believe Him by grace, through faith. Receive Him. Repent of your sins. He'll forgive every single last one of them. That's the only reason I'm a preacher. Because God is forgiving 
and patient and merciful and kind, even to people like me. He waits now so that many more may come to Christ. This world and everything in it will come to an end. It'll end. Jesus will stand as Lord and King of all and judge the living and the dead. Receive Him now. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear His voice, don't harden your heart any further. Lest He harden yours beyond repair because that's what you want. Turn to Christ and live. Admit you can do nothing and have nothing to contribute but the sin that makes all this necessary. Confess it all to Him and repent. He will forgive you. Mankind will hold everything over your head and punish you with it forever. Not Jesus when you repent. Receive Him. And Christians struggling in your day in and day out conflict with your flesh and sin and the world and the devil. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 And the one that comes to me, I will in no way cast out John 6.37 So you take those two things. You put them together in your heart every single day. And you call on the name of the Lord. He is relentless in His mercy. And this He is for you. For you. Yes, even 